Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we hear a guest who you will be familiar with and recognize she is coming back on the show because last time Nancy Piercy, Scott Ray, and myself talked about her wonderful new book, Love Thy Body. Today we're going to talk about the topic of truth and you've written two books that relate to this. We're going to focus on the book Total Truth, but first off, thanks for coming back on, Nancy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Let me jump and ask you this. I've heard some people describe you as kind of a modern-day Francis Schaeffer. Are you okay with that depiction? How, how Would you say that's accurate? Because he seems to have played such a huge role in your life and your thinking. Oh, it was huge. I became a Christian at Labrie, so... Uh, um, I owe my Christian life in many ways to Francis Schaeffer's mode of apologetics. I think what really struck me when I went to Labrie is um, I was already so postmodern in my thinking Mm. that a lot of the traditional apologetics didn't work with me. Um, Let me give you a story. So I was, my older brother had become a Christian. And he was quizzing me and a friend on our beliefs. And we were both, we were both hedging a bit because we didn't want to admit to our families how much we were really questioning our Christian, uh, Christian upbringing. So we were hedging, and he was getting frustrated. And finally he said, listen, do you think Jesus rose from the dead? And my friend said, well, that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? Mm. And I said, no, it's not. That could be a wonderful parable that gives people meaning in their lives and, you know, a symbol, a metaphor, you know, that that works for some people. So my friend was still in the modernist mindset that they're still true and false, you know, and if Jesus rose from the dead, you know, that's either true or false and that has implications. I was already so postmodern that I didn't even think in terms of true or false anymore. And so Schaefer, partly because he was living in Europe, Mm-hmm. Um, which was more postmodern yeah. than America was. Yep. Um, he had developed an apologetic that was suitable for the postmodern mindset. So th- that spoke to me in a way that traditional apologetics uh, hadn't at, at the time. So, and, and still, I, I would say still, um, I, I think Francis Schaeffer's mode of apologetics um, is particularly powerful since our culture now is more postmodern. I think his his work is really uh, um, appropriate for our day. There's an interesting new book that came out. Alan Noble has written a book called Disruptive Witness, and he starts by describing how the kind of the apologetic approach of Francis Schaeffer, how people would come seek truth with questions, go away because they're on kind of the spiritual search in the 60s and 70s and beyond. But now he says we've become so distracted by cell phones and technology that what we need to do is kind of disrupt people out of just being stuck on cell phones and get people to even think and wrestle with these kinds of questions. So in a sense, he's honoring Francis Shaver saying what he did worked exactly well, but we've got to change that for today. Does that resonate with you? Do you make sense of that? How would you do you think he's on to something? Well, certainly he's onto something in a sociological sense. In, in other words, as a descriptive sense, our kids are really hooked into their cell phones and their iPads and so on. But um, 
I still think, uh, now I'm judging from the students who come to HBU, right, Houston Baptist University where, where I teach, I still think that uh, if you ask the right questions, they're still searching for truth hmm. in the same way. What happened to Labrie is um, when I first went there, they were mostly intellectually seeking non-Christians. You know, most of the students were non-Christians. You know, it was a very much of an evangelistic ministry. Um, I was there twice. I didn't become a Christian the first time. Um, I left as a non-Christian, partly because, partly because it was so attractive. I was afraid that I might be drawn in um, before I was fully intellectually convinced. I mean, this is the first time I'd ever encountered Christians who could answer questions, who could engage with secular ideas, because you know, by then I was Gosh. very much you know, in, involved in studying philosophy, and I had all these philosophical questions. Um, in addition, you know, he did cultural apologetics, so he was very much into the arts. And I went to Labrie from Germany, where I was studying violin at the Heidelberg Conservatory. So his sensitivity for the arts really spoke to me. Mm. And then in addition, as you saw from the photos today, there were um, mostly hippies. Yeah, yeah. And back then, those were the cool kids. So the fact that these were Christians who could reach across that cultural divide and speak to disaffected young people was also very impressive. And I I just thought, who are these Christians? They are so different from any other Christians I've ever met. So I I was afraid I might be drawn in because it was so attractive. So I left. Oh, interesting. I left as a non-Christian. I stayed a month and then I left. And just on my own reading, eventually, uh, reading Moore Schaefer, reading Os Guinness, I think his books were out by then, Mm -hmm. Lewis. I'd never known about Lewis before I went wow. to Liberty. So just on my own reading, I finally became intellectually convinced that it was true. But I was not connected to a church or anything. So I thought, okay, where do I, where do I find other Christians? Sure. And that's when I went back to Liberty. Well, I knew some back in Switzerland. <laughs> so I went back to Liberty and that stayed four months. And that's where I really got grounded in my understanding of Christian worldview. So essentially, the philosophy and approach that he took in terms of analyzing culture, you think that's still relevant, if not maybe even more relevant than it ever has been. Would you agree with that? It is more relevant, um, both in the secular world and the Christian world. One of the things I discovered when I moved to Houston, um, you know, I used to live in Washington, D.C. Mm. And so Washington, D.C. is different. You don't, you don't, there's no cultural Christianity in D.C. You don't act as a Christian unless you really are one. Then you go to Houston and you find a lot of cultural Christianity where people say, well, I'm a Christian because I live in the South. You know, I've been raised in, you know, basically a, a Baptist, a Methodist theological tradition, but there's not as much um, real personal commitment. So the sacred secular split that Schaefer uh, analyzed uh, it's more relevant now than it was then. Wow. The sacred secular split is extremely strong in this Christ, in the Christian world still. Um, so you said this in your presentation. You said you hear people say, "Don't force your values on me," but no one says, "Don't force your facts on me." So unpack what you meant by that, and what this kind of divided view of truth we see in the culture that Schaefer was talking about. Like, help us understand what you mean by that. Yeah, I think that is one of his most important insights that is still relevant. Um, he talked about um, how the truth has become divided. Basically, people used to think truth was a single system. I mean, the, there's a 
moral order and there's a natural order, but they're all integrated. And so people had an integrated understanding of, of truth. But with the scientific revolution, that was really the turning point. A lot mm. of people began to think the only really reliable truth is scientific empirical data, what we can test in the laboratory. Well, what do you do then with moral truths or spiritual truths? You cannot stick them in a test tube and study them under a microscope. So many people decided, well, they just weren't really truths at all. They didn't qualify as truth. They were just personal preference, personal values, personal feelings. And in the secular world, that's called the fact-value split. Schaefer used the imagery of two stories in a building. You know, so the lower story is science and facts. The upper story is values, theology, morality. Um, and he didn't use the term fact-value split. But when I was writing Total Truth, um, I, had, I had seen the connection. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. That upper lower story imagery that he used is what secular academia calls the fact-value split. And so when he, I brought the two together, people started saying, oh, that's what Schaefer meant. That really is relevant <laughs> after all. Got it. So tell me the story behind writing Total Truth then. You've written Finding Truth. You've written Total Truth. So you seem to think in where we're at in our post-truth culture today, it's pretty important we remind people what truth is and how to understand it. So why so much emphasis on truth and why did you write Total Truth? The emphasis on truth um, <laughs> probably also comes out of my background because, you know, in, in high, I, I was raised in a Lutheran home. But I started asking questions in high school. I just all I was asking was, how do we know Christianity is true? Hmm. That's, you know, people think people sometimes probe and want to know if I just wanted to party, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know, sometimes people walk away from the Christian background because you know they sure. they, they they want to do <laughs> they, they want to have fun on Friday nights. But in my case, it's just that I was going to a public high school. All my teachers were secular. Hmm. All the textbooks are secular. And it seemed, it seemed presumptuous for Christians who seemed a tiny minority to say we were right and everybody else was wrong. You know, how could we say that? And so I started asking, is it true? That's what drove all of my search. And at the time, um, nobody, none of the adults in my life could answer that question. Apologetics wasn't very common back then. Wow. And, um, you know, the, 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 the type of answers I got was uh, on the level of... Um, I asked a university professor, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. Wow. I said, that's it? Or I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, and all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Wow. So I, it, it seemed to me a matter of intellectual honesty that if you don't have good reasons for something, you shouldn't believe it, whether it's Christianity or anything else. So I very intentionally, about halfway through high school, set aside my Christian upbringing and decided, I guess it's up to me, to find truth. And so I embarked on a conscious search for truth. I literally started walking down the hallway at the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf. Because I thought, yeah, if no, if no uh, wow. adults will answer my questions, maybe these books will. You know, <laughs> isn't that what philosophy is supposed to be about? How do we know truth? What is truth? Is there meaning to life? Is there a foundation for ethics? So, since this was a such a big part of my search, it was I just wanted to know what was true. You know, if the if atheism was true, 
uh, I wanted to I wanted to be like Bertrand Russell. Wow. You know, you know his fa- his famous quote where yep. he he says he mm-hmm. says the modern person must build his life on the scaffolding of unyielding despair. <laughs> and I thought, well, if there's no God, he's probably right. And if he is, that's 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 where I'm heading. You know, I, I really wanted to find what was true. So this fact-value split essentially says things like beauty and morality and philosophy, art, religion are preferences, they're values, but they're not facts like science, math, and maybe history. How has this seeped into the church? And I want you to share the example you just gave in your lecture about a well-meaning, I think it was a teacher or a youth leader who kind of drew two different pictures on the board. Unpack that for us a little bit. Oh, yes. That was an article I read that was written by a young woman who had just graduated from high school. Um, And she wrote uh, about her first day in theology class. And she said, my teacher drew a heart on one side of the blackboard and a brain on the other side. And he informed us that the that the, the two were as divided as the two sides of the blackboard. The brain is what we use for science and the heart is what we use for religion. And by the way, she was the only student who protested. She stood up and protested. Wow. And um, all the other students were fine with it. And this theology teacher got her kicked out of that class. Oh, my goodness. For for challenging him. But the point is, how can young people love God with all their minds if they are being told that the mind has nothing to do with theology? Hmm. So schools like this are turning out young people who may be Christian in their heart, but will be secular in their thinking. If the heart and the brain are so separate and theology has nothing to do with with the brain, they're going to end up thinking like secular people. Mm. Do you think this is one of the reasons the church is not having a bigger impact on culture and society and missions and beyond this kind of fact-value split? I think it's the main reason. Um, In my book, I give other examples as well where young people essentially treat religion as something you do on Sunday, something you do in prayer meeting, but it's not something that informs your life in terms of your vocation, your professional life, uh, your understandings of science and politics and the arts and so on. Um, you may remember from my lecture, I gave an example of an English professor at a Christian college who was writing a column in his local newspaper, and I read one of them. And in that column, he said that he was shocked when he read his students' journals because they would write about intense worship experiences on one page, and on the next page they would walk, talk, they would write about their sexual exploits. And he said, and this is a direct quote from the column, he said, my students are rampantly promiscuous. There's a significant gap between what they profess to believe and what they, how they actually live. And the lesson to me there is, you know, if you have a subjective understanding of Christian ethics, if you put it in the, in the, what Schaefer called the upper story or the realm of values, so that it's just a matter of personal preference, it's not going to have the power to transform your life. And our young people will end up living just like secular people. One of the criticisms I've read of kind of a worldview teaching and training is that it makes human beings like a brain on a stick. Like it reduces us just to what we think. And people have said, it's not just what you think, but we act out of what we love and have to have certain habits. So the criticism has been that worldview thinking is not enough just to help a person understand truth. 
there has to be habits and certain rituals built in to cultivate a character capable of even making those decisions. Do you, is that a fair critique of worldview? No. Tell me your thoughts. <laughs> I know you thought about no. this. But. I understand the crit- criticism. And there may, have, there may be styles of teaching worldview that, would, that you, I would criticize the same way. But I say if somebody's teaching worldview that way, they're teaching it the wrong way. Mm. They're not doing it right. You see, I was introduced to worldview when I went to Labrie, where it was a matter of life and death. Mm. I mean, I had, like I said a minute ago, I had come to realize that if there's, if there's no God, you do have to be Bertrand Russell. You do have to face the unyielding despair. That if there's no God, there's no meaning to life. We're on a rock flying through empty space. There's no foundation for ethics. There's just what, you know, what I prefer versus what you prefer. Um, in high school, in fact, I'd gotten to the point where I was the one in my group of friends who was arguing that, you, that there's no right or wrong. Uh, I remember, well, I remember one time a friend of mine said to me, oh, she's so wrong. And I'm, I immediately jumped in. And, you can't say she's wrong. You, there's no right <laughs> or wrong. You know, I, I was a complete relativist. I had even become a skeptic in the sense that I thought, if all I have is my puny brain and the fast scope of time and history, how can I think I could achieve a sense of universal, eternal, absolute truth? Ridiculous. Obviously ridiculous. And so I had become a complete skeptic and relativist, realizing that there, you know, there's no meaning to life if God is not there. So when I encountered worldview, it's because I was struggling with, do I have a reason to live anymore? Hmm. This was not a dry intellectual academic study. Hmm. <laughs> this, this was my whole being. I was searching for God or for truth back then. I didn't know it was God yet. <laughs> I was searching hmm. for truth with my whole being. And for me, it was a question of life or death. So that's what I try to impart to my students. So how do we help people who aren't there yet, grown up in Christian homes, who don't realize it the way you do? You're like naturally wired to care about truth, philosophical. A lot of people may not be wired that way or just aren't there yet in their life emotionally, say. How do we get people to realize that about worldview? Is it telling stories? Is it giving examples, using art? What are the tools to make people go, oh, I see how worldview is so important and translates to my life? You know, I think a lot of it is learning about secular worldviews and really wrestling with them. A lot of Christian parents in schools are afraid of really letting their kids wrestle with secular ideas. Um, I spoke at a at a um, Christian classical school recently. I was speaking on finding truth, and so I was constantly talking about, you know, how we can compare Christianity with secular views and how we can show that Christianity has better answers than secular views and. Um, and finally, the headmistress of the school said, <clears throat> um, we don't teach our kids about secular views. Oh, wow. <laughs> and before that, she had told me how distressed she was at the number of kids who left her school and left their faith behind, who went off to college and, and stopped being Christians, and who even said things like, we had to get deprogrammed. Well, of course they felt like they'd been programmed if they'd been taught only one perspective. So I find that if you teach students 
Okay, fine. Let's let's look honestly at these non-Christian views. Let's consider whether they're really true or not. Let's spell out the implications. Let's, you know, help them to see that if they're not Christians, they're going to end up with Bertrand Russell's unyielding mm. despair. They don't have to go there themselves like I did. I don't think you do. Mm. But uh, you you have to sort of imaginatively put yourself into that worldview and see what it feels like. And then you appreciate Christianity so much better. I think there's a lot of Christian leaders afraid to do that because yeah. I'm going to make my kids have more questions or I'm going to create doubt in their life. And my answer is that might have worked before the Internet, but now kids are experiencing this. I'd much rather have them in the family, in the Christian home, in their homeschool, in church, where they have a safe environment and they can process it. But I totally agree. Sometimes when I show a YouTube video of an atheist, I role play an atheist, I show a blog by an atheist. There's an interest among students that educationally brings them in and shows we're not even afraid of these ideas. Let's talk about them. We have truth on our side. Now, you have a great example. I love the way you frame this. And you said one of the worldview problems in the church is that we approach it through a lens of Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1. Can you explain what you mean by that and then practically why that's so important? Yeah, this is the way I um, explain it to my students sometimes, that there's a Genesis 1 version of Christianity and a Genesis 3 version. Well, what does the Bible talk about in Genesis 3? It talks about the fall, the fall of the human race into sin. And if you start with Genesis 3, if your message begins there, you end up with the classic revivalist message. You are a sinner. You need to get saved, which is true. But it does tend to lead to a sacred-secular split because what the message that students, that I say students because I, that's, that's my main audience now. Um, and these are grad students you're I have with. both. Oh, you but, do? Okay. I have had both. Right now okay. I'm doing just grad. But, um, but the message people get is that the world is essentially fallen, corrupt, evil, sinful, and, and worthless. I mean, that's the, that's the message I get often from my students, that they feel like they've been taught that this world is worthless and that they are worthless. And so it leads to the notion that, okay, uh, um, the, the, the church is an ark, and the, our goal is to pull people out of the world into the ark. Um, and there's not much sense that there's a spiritual calling in the secular professions like, you know, uh, business and education and law and politics and the arts. Um, there's a sense that what counts is just the religious vocations. Genesis 1 it teaches creation. And so what it teaches is God God gives us a job description in Genesis 1, right? He's created the world, he's created living things, he's created human beings. And now he tells us why he did it. What are we here for? What's our purpose? And there's that really succinct verse that says be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply doesn't mean just the family but all the social institutions that Mm. grow out of the family like church and school and business and government so it means develop all of the social world Um, subdue the earth means um, harness the natural resources so it's you know plant crops build bridges design computers and compose music 
So that is what God originally intended for us to do. This is pre-fall. So this is God's original intention. In the fall, people get off track. When we sin, you know, we get off the track. In salvation, God brings us back on track. But we often don't talk about, well, what was the track? What was God's original purpose? And for that, we go back to Genesis 1, and it's to, to build cultures. This, is, this verse is often called the cultural mandate because it means that God has mandated. That's, that means commandment. God commands us to build cultures, build civilizations. And so he, the, the, that's where the basis of the Christian worldview is. It's, it's saying, yes, there is a basis for bringing Christian truth into all of these areas because God has created them all. When I share this idea, people have a sense of empowerment and liberation. Like, wow, I can actually live out my faith commitment in my work and in my communities around the world. I don't have to compartmentalize it. I can only imagine how much having written the book on this and focusing your ministry on this, you have some stories of people that have applied it. Let me ask you to share one that I've heard you share a couple times about the musician Lecrae. And how when he grabbed this idea that Christianity is a totalizing worldview from reading your book, Total Truth, it was really transformative for him. Yeah, it, it all started when I started, I got, I got several emails from friends saying, do you know Lecrae is out there promoting your book, Total Truth? And at, at that time, my first response was, who is Lecrae? <laughs> That's awesome. Because I was not really following hip hop, Christian hip hop artists at the time. Um, but he... You know, he, as, as you know, and maybe some people in the audience don't know, um, his father left his family when he was young, and he he got involved in, in gang activity and drugs and sex and alcohol and so on. And finally, Christians reached out to him, and he became a Christian. Um, but he says, and um, this is a quote from one of those conferences um, where he, he was promoting total truth, he says that really, the really transforming time came for him, not just when he converted, but when he discovered that Christianity is not just religious truth, it is total truth, um, and that God has God speaks to all areas of life. And I, I just showed you one of his quotes, but I've pulled a yeah. couple of them. He's, he's said it several times in, in different talks. And I even met him personally when he came to Houston for a, for a concert. And, uh, and, and here's how he put it when he talked to me in person. He said, when I became a Christian, I thought... I could write lyrics about religious subjects. And he had, the way he put it was salvation and sanctification, <laughs> you know, religious topics. And then he said, when I read your book, Total Truth, I realized I could write lyrics about anything. As long as it was from a Christian perspective, it, it's a Christian, it's Christian music, right? So that um, it really, it really um, Amplified his, his sense of what he could do as a Christian. Like you said, it's very empowering to realize that every area of life is open to us as a Christian. I think it's so liberating when people find out that you don't just have to be a professional Christian, whatever that means in a certain ministry, but all of us are called to apply the gospel in creative and unique ways to our professions. That's why, I, actually, when youth leaders ask me what books would I recommend, I don't know if I've told you this, but in my top five, I've said to so many youth pastors and parents, you've got to read Total Truth. It'll frame the way you think about teaching this generation of youth to, in our secular culture, are conditioned, and sometimes in the church without realizing it, to compartmentalize your faith to spiritual things, but not to apply it to every area of life. I think it guts conviction. I think it guts power, and I think it guts a certain joy. 
So thanks for writing Total Truth. And if our, our listeners have not picked it up yet, I hope they'll pick it up. Let me end with this question. What are you working on next? Um, well, I did sign a two-book contract, so I have to, I have no choice. I have to keep moving. <laughs> I, I, for a long time, I have been writing, wanting to write a book on how to keep your kids Christian in college. And I am going to start on this book. Um, and it's so fun now that I'm a, I'm, I'm a professor at a Christian college. I now have some graduate students who are going to be my research assistants. Love it. This is going to be new. But when I, every time I, I'm in a Christian audience and they, they ask me that question, what, what are you going to do next? And I say how to keep your Chris, kids Christian in college. The whole audience is, oh, we need that book yesterday. <laughs> um, and here's, here's my sort of paradigmatic story. I met a mother um, who's, she was in ministry. I met her at the College of Biblical Studies, so she's, you know, serious about her faith, she and her family. And her first, her oldest son goes off to Texas A&M to study psychology. Loses his faith in the first semester. Gosh. He was not prepared for the fact that most of the theories in psychology today are secular and often hostile to Christianity. Ever since Freud, psychologists have been saying religion is a, an infantile regression, that you just can't grow up, and so you project an imaginary father figure into the sky. And as his mother was telling me this, I couldn't say it. But I thought, you mean you let him go off to a secular university and you didn't tell him what he was going to encounter? You didn't wow. prepare him? And so I thought, what, what we really need is a book that says, okay, when you study psychology, you're going to run into these theories. Here's how to critique them. And here's how to craft a Christian answer. Okay, when you study economics or when you study politics or math, even math is not neutral. Here are the theories you're going to encounter. There's no book that just does that. That just says, here's what you. Here's the major theories, the major people hmm. that you're going to study, and here's here's the tools to think critically about it, and to craft a Christian answer. Nancy, for what it's worth, my vote is you should write that book. I'm serious. I would love it. whatever I could do to help. I think that's a wonderful idea. I think it'd be unique, meets a felt need, and just a real genuine need in the church. So. I hope you'll do it. Thanks so much for coming on. Our listeners, if you have not heard the episode where we got to interview Nancy Piercy talking about Love Thy Body, go back a few episodes. You'll find it. That's a wonderful book. Hope you'll pick up Total Truth. Thanks for what you're doing. We consider HBU at Bio as a whole, but in particular in the Apologetics Program, just a partnership. We got to lock arms together because we're fighting some really serious battles today. And I think you're doing that with truth but also with grace, which is what we're about here at Biola. So thanks for your ministry and thanks for coming back on. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Nancy Piercy, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Mm-hmm.